0: Welcome to new hope and the teaching ministry of pastor randy rainwater today adults and missions director patrick moran is teaching and i don't want you to take this as condemning i'm preaching it to myself how are you suffering for the gospel turn in your bible now to colossians chapter one here's patrick all right if you guys would say hello to each other and welcome everyone to sunday morning I don't know if I'll ever get over the nerves um, before preaching. Um, that's because it's, I think it's just—it's such, such a tall task to, to deliver God's word, and it, it actually comes with a lot of weight. Um, but it's something that I love to do, and I'm honored to be here, um, as Randy is at a wedding uh, today. And so I'm very honored to be here. Um, it's been a long time, almost six months since the last time I preached, so I'm very excited for this morning. We're gonna be in Colossians chapter one, so if you need a Bible, put your hand up and we'll get you one. Colossians chapter one. We'll be going through verses 24 to 27. And as you flip there, I wanna show this picture of one of our students. Um, This is Bailey Cashella. And if any of you guys know George and Vanette Cashella, this is their daughter who's graduating from Archer High School this year. And Bailey is in this AP art class. And she had an art show, or Archer had an art show to display all of the drawings and paintings and everything that the kids had done over the year. And what's interesting, and you guys may not be able to see clearly the pictures, what's interesting is Bailey has chosen to use her art as a medium for preaching the gospel. Yes, exactly. I'm getting choked up thinking about it, because when me and Hannah went, we just bawled when she told us the story of all these pictures. The first one on the bottom left is kind of the, um, a not true picture of Jesus. He's white and he's got, and we know he's not, Jesus is not white. And uh, he's got this far away stare. He doesn't even have pupils. He's just looking off, just not, you know, just emotionless. And then she has in the middle, the humanity of Jesus. Jesus on the cross, bleeding real blood, dying for the sins of his people, in pain, in agony, suffering what we should have suffered. She's got the veil ripping from top to bottom, something God could only do that was accomplished by the death of Jesus. She's got the miraculous catch of fish when Jesus told fishermen who knew what they were doing, You're doing it wrong. Do it the way I tell you. And then in the top middle, she's got the stoning of Stephen. And in the top left, she's got the transformation of Paul. The blood came in red and it goes out white because now Paul's been purified by Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about this, and this will fit into the message today, is Bailey is risking ridicule from her classmates. She's risking suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ because she loves God and she loves people. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. This is Paul's ministry to the church. Colossians chapter one, starting at verse 24. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Let's do a quick recap from last week because it's hard. Randy had a difficult task going through 23 verses of Colossians 1. It's so rich. It's so deep. So I want to remind us of where we were last week. We saw a prayer of Paul for the Colossians. He prayed for them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and pleasing to the Lord. And for the Colossians to be thankful that God had qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints. It's God who qualifies, not us. Paul encourages the Colossians in this way. He says that Jesus, the one I preach to you, is the image of the invisible God. He shows us exactly who God is. The image of the invisible God. And that all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, including us. We were created for Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ's sacrificial blood shed on the cross. And this shed blood accomplished something. It was not shed in vain. For those who would believe in Jesus, his shed blood ended their alienation as enemies of God. The Bible says every non-believer is an enemy of God. Jesus said, whoever is not for me is against me. But, but Paul says you were You were rescued from this alienation. God has brought you into this familial relationship with God. He is now your father. What a blessing this is, what grace that Paul is writing to them about. And Paul encourages them to continue in their faith. Don't forsake the gospel. Don't forget the true gospel that I preach to you. This gospel has washed you clean of your filth and you're now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now some heresy had found its way into the church and Paul told the, told the Colossians, remain steadfast. Remember the gospel that I preached. Remember the true gospel. We would be wise to heed these words today. Church, the church is under intellectual and spiritual assault, as it always has been. But do not waver on the gospel. Do not compromise with the world. Do not forget that Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Do not forget the gospel. And that's the backdrop for where we find ourselves this morning. Having reminded the Colossians of Christ's work, having reminded them of the gospel, Paul says this in verse 24 Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul was writing this letter as a prisoner in Rome. The enemies of the true gospel in Colossae were probably ridiculing him to other believers. How could someone who claims to be chosen by God be in prison? Didn't he go around preaching Christ's power working through him? Didn't he claim to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit? He did claim these things, and these things are true. But contrary to some modern preaching in America's churches, not here, of course, but contrary to some modern preaching, being a Christian does not keep you free from trials and tribulations. In fact, if we listen to the words of Jesus, we should expect more troubles in our life After our conversions. John 15, Jesus promises that his disciples will be hated. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. Matthew 5, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake. In Acts 9, 16, with regard to Paul's conversion, Jesus tells Ananias to meet Paul and Jesus says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. We are not immune to suffering in this life. It's how we suffer that matters. All of us are going to suffer, but what does Paul say? Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. This word now that Paul uses is much more than a nice transition to a new topic. It directly refers back to everything Paul just said. In essence, he's saying, because of the gospel I just reminded you of, I'm letting you I'm letting you know that I rejoice in my sufferings because of it and for you. To the Philippians, Paul wrote that he considered his suffering a privilege. And like the other apostles who claimed in Acts 5, they claimed that they were rejoiced. They were rejoicing to be counted worthy of suffering dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. They rejoiced in their sufferings. To suffer for Christ in the preaching of the gospel is to be found worthy in God's sight. When we talk of suffering though, I don't want you to think that you need to go out and provoke non-believers to anger. You're not to intentionally seek out this suffering. We're talking about suffering for something. J.D. Walt says that when we love people, we will suffer for them. He says, by suffering, I don't mean a grit your teeth and bear it kind of activity, but a gladly putting others first kind of activity. When suffering is done with love, it does not feel like suffering, but like joy. Hence, Paul rejoices in his suffering. Now, when I first came to Christ, the man who took me in and introduced me to Jesus, he gave me this NIV study Bible, and it's proven to be a great friend to me. I still work through this Bible during my personal time with God. And as I've been working through Colossians, I came across a note that I had written, probably in response to one of Randy's sermons uh, years ago. Now, earlier in Colossians 1, Paul says in verse 11, that uh, he's praying for the Colossians to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Most likely at Randy's request, I wrote here at the bottom, terrible handwriting, but it says endurance and patience equals pain, there will be a struggle. The only reason we need endurance and patience is if things are going to be difficult. But we see in verse 24, that Paul rejoices in these difficult moments. I rejoice in my suffering. Paul rejoiced in his suffering with endurance and patience because he loved God and he loved God's people. Now the next part of the verse can seem kind of troubling to our understanding because Paul says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. He says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is not to be taken as though Christ's atoning death and what he suffered on the cross for the remissions of sins was not efficacious. Listen to Paul in Romans 3 explain the completed work of Christ. Romans three twenty three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Had Christ's death not been satisfactory in its propitiation or appeasement to God, we would not now be justified because the propitiation would not be complete. But Paul says it is complete. Listen to Hebrews 10.10. The author says, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. If there was still more atoning to be accomplished, this scripture would not be true because the author says that Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. It's complete. So what does Paul mean that he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Three things he has in mind. The first, he has in mind God's sovereignty, And this word, when you hear this word sovereignty, can kinda conjure up maybe a definition or a picture of something that may only be partially true. Sometimes we think this means that God is just acting as an emotionless decision maker. I'm gonna do this for no reason. I'm gonna do this for no reason. I'm gonna do this for no reason. But that's not true. He is sovereign in not only how he runs the universe, he's also sovereign in his love for his people. He knows what's best for you and he allows things to happen that may not seem like the best thing, but in the end, it's for your sanctification because he is sovereign in his love for you. God's sovereignty is sovereign grace. Paul knew that God had a plan for his life, and that plan included suffering. For some in modern evangelicalism, they think when you become a Christian, all suffering in life will end. They preach that every Christian should be healthy and wealthy, but we know this is not true. If this were the case, why have so many Christians been persecuted through history? Why are they still being persecuted now? If we're all supposed to be healthy and wealthy, we would not suffer persecution. How many have been martyred throughout history? I was looking through John Fox's Fox's book of Martyrs. It's been updated. And they said there's 160,000 Christian martyrs every year. Let's listen to the first century martyrs. Peter, crucified upside down. Matthew, killed by a sword in Ethiopia. James, the brother of Jesus, thrown from the top of the temple and he survived the fall and was clubbed to death. Nathanael was flayed to death by a whip. Andrew, crucified. Thomas, speared in India. Matthias, stoned and beheaded. Paul, tortured and beheaded. That's only eight that I've named. And that was in what? The first 50 years of Jesus Christ. These are just a few of the apostles and the brother of Jesus. Christians will suffer in this life, but God is sovereign And the scriptures tell us that he is working everything together for the good of those who love him. Second point, Paul sees his own sufferings in light of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry said, a Christian may be said to fill up that which remains of the sufferings of Christ when he takes up his cross. And after the pattern of Christ, he bears patiently the afflictions that God allots to him. Romans 8, 16 and 17, Paul says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul knows that suffering will come to those who believe because Christ suffered. Third point, though Christ is exalted, he continues to suffer as his body, the church, is suffering under persecution. In Acts 9, when Jesus appears to Paul at his conversion on the road to Damascus, He appears to him, he says, Saul, Saul, as he's persecuting the church, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's equating persecution of the church with persecution of himself. John MacArthur says, in spite of his death on the cross, Christ's enemies had not gotten their fill of inflicting injury upon him. So they turned their hatred on those who preach the gospel. We share in Christ's suffering when we are persecuted for the sake of the gospel, but we're not left alone in those moments. He comforts us during those times of affliction as one who is familiar with affliction. Bakum says when there's commitment to the gospel, when we are about a work that is about the gospel, when we are in the midst of a culture that is antagonistic toward the gospel, then our work will be characterized by a sense of suffering. And the only way to endure this suffering is through the power of God. God not only allows the suffering, but it's God who sustains us through it, and it's God who comforts us as we suffer. But this is great and informative on what Paul meant. But what does it mean for you and me? There are modern examples of people who have been persecuted. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. After the rise of uh, the Nazis in Germany, Bonhoeffer left Germany for the United States to avoid potential conscription into the Nazi army. And two weeks later, he decided he made a mistake. He wrote this letter Uh, to his friend Reinhold Niebuhr back in Germany. He says, I've come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share in the trials of this time with my people. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. He would eventually go back to Germany and he was hanged in 1945 by the Nazis. Randy and I had the privilege last Sunday to meet with a Russian speaking church based in Loburn. And in this church are Russians, Moldovians, Bulgarians, Ukrainians, they all speak Russian together. They all have their own languages, but in the church they all speak Russian together because they learned Russian under the communist USSR, under the Soviet bloc. And they were telling us stories of how they were persecuted in communist USSR. You couldn't get baptized until you were 25. Children were not allowed to attend church because the state has control of the children. And when you teach them young, you can influence them a certain way. KGB members would play pastors on Sundays. They would put on suits. They would preach a soft message, ensure nothing about the freedom of Christ was taught. They'd go back to the KGB during the week. They even told us stories of the government releasing dogs in the churches to clear them out. And now they're housing 45 Ukrainian refugees in the homes of the families that attend this church. Not only did they suffer for the gospel in communist USSR, but now they're suffering for the gospel in housing all these people and taking care of them and trying to get them on their feet. But how do we suffer here? What does suffering in the West look like? The Christian life is not about getting my needs met. Suffering in the West can look like someone standing in the gap for someone else. The man who took me into his family's home and introduced me to Jesus Christ, he was sacrificing his, out of his love, and he was standing in the gap for me. He sacrificed his resources, his time, his family privacy, because he wanted to show me the love of Christ. We can be persecuted for standing up for the word of God. In England, in the United Kingdom, people are getting arrested for preaching God's sexual ethic. It's deemed hate speech, and they don't have freedom of speech laws there, so they're being persecuted for saying the truth. Nabil Qureshi, who wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, he was a former Muslim who came to Christ because of the love and persistence of a Christian friend. He became alienated after his conversion from his Muslim family, and after his conversion, he had threats lobbied on his life, because to be an apostate in Islam means death. Joseph Kennedy, a former coach at Bremerton High School in Washington State, he used to pray on the field after every game, win or lose. The school district warned him not to do that anymore, but he continued to give thanks to God after every game and was placed on administrative leave and his contract was not renewed. In essence, he lost his job for praying to the one true God. He suffered for the gospel. My challenge to you today, and I don't want you to take this as condemning, I'm preaching it to myself, how are you suffering for the gospel? How am I suffering for the gospel? What sacrifices am I making? What sacrifices are you making to make the word of God fully known, as Paul says his stewardship was? But Paul says he rejoiced in his sufferings. But why? For the sake of the church, he tells us. Colossians 1:25, he says, to the body of Christ, the church, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This word minister is the Greek diakonos. It means someone, uh, the most common meaning is someone who executes the commands of another, a servant of a master, an administrator of something. Jesus uses this word in the Gospels figuratively of those who advance the interest of others at the sacrifice of their own. Paul became a servant of Christ to preach the Gospel. He was called to this by God. His calling was to preach the Gospel, and he suffered for it. I wonder how often we neglect our own callings in this world. Each one of us has a calling from God, whether you know it or not. Some are called to be pastors. Some are called to be greeters. Some are called to be martyrs in faraway lands. But I want you to know something. If you don't know what your calling is in terms of service to the kingdom, that's okay. Scripture has laid out for us the most basic callings that each of us have. We have specific callings and general callings. Specific looks like pastor, teacher, evangelist, missionary. And as I was discussing my teaching this week in regard to your general calling, Shiva had this incredible observation. She said, some people wait around for divine revelation on what they should do. When you don't know what to do, do the two great commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. We also have the great commission and go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. You can't teach people to obey Jesus Christ unless you're preaching from His word. These are your general callings, the great commandments and the Great Commission. And if you're asking yourself, what does God want me to do? Know this, Sheba says, as you do the general, you'll find the specific. Randy, in regards to this as well, says faithfulness means doing the next right thing. Do the basics of your general calling. Love God, love people, and preach the word. Most importantly, there's the call to follow Jesus. This involves renouncing of sin, renouncing your old evil ways, This is repentance, turning away from the world, turning towards God. We are told to stand firm in the faith. Uh, Commit completely to the Lord. This is the most basic and important calling for you. If you don't know what to do, commit to the Lord. There are other normal callings for Christians. You don't have to be Billy Graham and preach to a million people at one time to please God. There are things you can do in your everyday life that will please him. Husbands, lead your families to be the head of the wife, to lay down your life for her, to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands. Manage your household. Raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Encourage other believing women in the church. Children, if your parents are still alive, this still means you. Children, you have a call to honor your mother and father. There's the Christian's call to sacrificially love people, to love your neighbor, to pray for your enemies, to forgive those who sin against you over and over and over and over and over and over. There is no end to the forgiveness you are to offer to those who sin against you. If you don't know if you have a ministerial calling or any calling at all, just start with the basics. Follow Jesus and submit to the teachings of Scripture. Now, Paul says that his calling to preach the gospel came with a stewardship. His stewardship or oversight was to make the word of God fully known. And he calls it the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. God always had a plan for redeeming humanity. The Old Testament prophets foretold of a coming Messiah, but there was always a shadow cast over how that plan was going to come to fruition. The mystery of God's redemptive plan was hidden in Jesus Christ. But now, God's wonderful plan has come into the light. It has been revealed and was being proclaimed by the apostles. But what is this mystery? What's verse 27? To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Two parts to the mystery. The first part is the mystery that, not that Gentiles could be saved. Paul's writing to Gentiles. It's not that Gentiles could be saved. But how could Gentiles share in the same salvation when salvation is of the Jews? The Pharisees thought they had a monopoly on salvation. Yeah, sure, Gentiles could be saved, but it would be a lesser salvation because salvation is of the Jews. But Paul answers this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, speaking to Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It is through Christ's blood that he made peace between Jew and Gentile, and the wall of hostility has been brought down. And the church is being built together by the power of one spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. This reminds me of our congregation. One of the the great things about this church is that our congregation looks like our community. We don't go out and intentionally seek people of this color or of that creed or of that language. We just preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit draws people in. Our congregation looks like the church in heaven. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And we are being built together by the one Holy Spirit. We don't judge you by your skin color. We don't judge you by where you came from. We don't judge you by your past sins. We have two questions that we wanna know. Do you love Jesus, and can we walk through life with you? That's what we care about. All of us are Gentiles who are, I don't think there's any Messianic Jews in here, but all of us are Gentiles who are being united into one church by the Spirit of God. Jesus foretold of this in John 16, or John 10. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold that means Gentiles, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. We are of his one flock, he is our one shepherd. So the first part of the mystery directed at the Pharisees, that Gentiles, it is true, they can be part of God's church and they can share in God's blessings. The second part of the mystery is the last part of verse 27. It's the most mysterious part, but it's the most important part. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The riches of the glory of the mystery is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is a promise of God that upon coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, God himself through the person of Christ will be directly and personally present in the lives of his people, and this presence assures us of our future lives with him when he returns. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says it's Christ who lives through him. If you've grown up in the church, this may be something that you're used to hearing a lot. If you've grown up in church, you may be told at a young age that Jesus comes to fill your heart. And that's true. But do we take that for granted? Think about who this letter was written to. The Colossians were former Gentiles. The Colossians were new believers. They didn't grow up in the church. They didn't grow up in a Christian home. They had been enemies of God, living according to their selfish and fleshly desires. They were outside the covenants of grace. They were alienated from knowing God and knowing his love. Yet here, Paul says, Christ lives in you. Think about what joy they would have had reading that. They were once dead, but now they're alive in Christ. Often, we need to be reminded of things like this, to live to our first love again, to be reminded of who we used to be in order to be grateful for who Christ has made us now. But what's the significance for us? What are the implications of Christ living in me? This is the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Every Christian is promised that the Spirit of God lives inside of you. When you are indwelled with the Spirit, your life is marked by spirit empowerment. This affects us in the way that we proclaim the, we proclaim the gospel with boldness, with freeness, and without fear. The Holy Spirit creates in us a desire to be holy, to be like Jesus Christ. He, enli- he creates in us a love for God's word. And when we go to the word, he enlightens our reading of it. He shows us our sin and he empowers us to forsake the world. He shows us the hope that is found in Jesus Christ, as Paul says, the hope of glory. When we were outside of Christ, we were without hope. But now that we are in Christ, we have hope, a glorious hope of our future, a glorious hope of sanctification, a glorious hope of salvation. And band, you guys can come on up. I'm early, all right. When Christ lives in us, we can suffer well. From Dustin Binge, who works for the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, um, he was writing about John Owen. I think I have a picture of John Owen. John Owen writes Dustin Binge, he knew much about disease and sickness. He lost 10 of his 11 children in death. Yet he still wrote these words, to those to whom Christ is the hope of future glory, He is also the life of present grace. Christ is our present grace and future glory in our greatest suffering. Matthew Henry says, only by Christ dwelling in us do we have an assured hope of future glory. We must be faithful to death through all trials that we may receive the crown of life and obtain the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Paul rejoiced in his sufferings because Christ lived in him. When we examine our lives, we should do it knowing that Christ is not only with us, as he promised in the Great Commission, but he's also in us. When we examine our sufferings, we should do so knowing that Christ is suffering as his people are being persecuted. Don't take this to mean that he's still suffering pain, but it grieves him when his people are persecuted. But it is God who will take vengeance in the end. It is God's spirit that urges us on through all trials and all tribulations to suffer well for the gospel and to suffer well in our service to others. There's this band, they're relatively new. They're called City of Light. And if you haven't heard of them, they're absolutely incredible. Gospel-centered music, Christ-centered music, that's all they do. And they have this song that Claire Gann introduced me to. If you remember Claire Gann um, before before she attended another church, But the song is called, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. It's kind of a Galatians 2.20 song. In two verses, I want to read to you this morning. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus, now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Will y'all pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your work on the cross. We thank you that it's complete. And as much as we struggle through this life, will you always remind us of what you went through to purchase us and to purchase our cleansing, and to purchase our salvation. Will you remind us that you live in us, and that when we recognize that, we can suffer well, knowing that you are in control of all things, and you're allowing this to happen. Let us know the lessons that you want us to learn from each of the sufferings that we have in our life. And if we don't know where we're suffering or how we're suffering, will you search us, oh God? Will you show us? where we are being obedient, where we are being disobedient, where we need to step into other people's lives. We all have a ministry in our everyday lives where you show us how to preach to people and will you give us the right words to say at the right time Will you remind us that it's not us who saves people but it's your Holy Spirit that regenerates. We thank you for your word. I thank you for the congregation this morning that we can gather in your name in this freedom that we enjoy. Will we never forget the freedom you bought for us for us? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. I'm Myrna Brown.